You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. And with that vote, history was made. The January 6th committee recommended that Donald Trump be prosecuted for his role in the assault on the U.S. Capitol. The first time a former president has been the subject of a criminal referral by Congress. He lost the 2020 election and knew it, but he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. Democratic Chair Benny Thompson led the committee through 18 months of investigation into the insurrection that included interviewing more than a 1,000 people, gathering more than a million documents, and issuing more than 100 subpoenas. Democratic committee member Jamie Raskin urged the Justice Department to consider prosecuting Trump for four offenses, obstructing Congress's certification of the 2020 election results, conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to submit fake slates of electors, and inciting an insurrection. Mr. Chairman, we understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy that we describe in our report. But we have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. The question now is whether this unprecedented referral will lead to an unprecedented prosecution of a former president. Joining me to discuss the referral's impact is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig of Lowenstein Sandler. Ellie... This referral is symbolic. It doesn't require the Justice Department to do anything. And in fact, Special Counsel Jack Smith is already leading an investigation into Trump. But does the public nature of the referral and the information that it comes with put any pressure on the Justice Department to come up with indictments against Trump? So first of all, yes, this is symbolic. But that doesn't mean it's meaningless. Things that are symbolic can have a serious impact. Does it increase political pressure, public pressure on DOJ? Sure. The more voices, especially authoritative voices like Congress, that you have calling on prosecutors to bring charges, the more public pressure. But I don't think that pressure is going to influence DOJ. It's not supposed to influence DOJ. And every attorney general going back to the start of the republic will say we are not influenced by public pressure. But I think with Merrick Garland, one thing that I think he's very strong on is not being subject to political pressure. But here's what I think is going to make a big difference, June, and that's the actual evidence itself. It doesn't so much matter what the label is or whether it's packaged as a referral or not. 
But I guarantee you, DOJ and federal prosecutors are going to go through that report that comes out of the committee word by word because there's going to be evidence in there that DOJ does not have. There could be evidence in there that's different or inconsistent in some respects with evidence that DOJ has. And by the way, Donald Trump's lawyers will do the exact same thing. They're going to look for weaknesses. They're going to look for holes. So I'm not so concerned if I'm a prosecutor with the referral itself. I'd probably just roll my eyes at that and go, okay, thanks for the referral, Congress. But I'm very interested in the actual evidence in the substance. But does it hurt prosecutors to have all that evidence out there with the public, potential witnesses, and as you mentioned, Trump's people going through it? Yes, and it cuts both ways. On the one hand, if you're DOJ, you're grateful. Wow, all this new evidence, almost certainly some that DOJ didn't already know, and we know that the committee got to certain key witnesses before DOJ, Cassidy Hutchinson being one example, Patsy Baloney being another example, the text from Mark Meadows, the committee got those before DOJ had them as far as we know. On the other hand, as a prosecutor, you never want other people interviewing and questioning your key witnesses. You never want there to be a massive body of previous statements that a witness can be attacked, questioned, cross-examined on. And that's what's really unusual here, because in any criminal case, the prosecution has to turn over and the defense lawyer has an obligation to scrutinize any prior statements of the witnesses. Well, here, there are reams and reams of volumes of that material that we're going to see fully when it all comes out in the next few days. And all of that is fair game for defense lawyers to pick apart. So this is part of the reason there's a cost to the fact that DOJ has been largely lagging behind Congress. Now there's going to be all this information out there, some of which may be used to undermine its case, which is outside of DOJ's control. What struck you about the referral and the report, sort of high points? The executive summary that we saw, which runs about 160 pages. By the way, if I was advising the committee, I would have said, let's have a a little more summary, a little less executive. That's a little long for a summary. Much of it was material that we already knew, not all, presented with similar themes to what we've seen before, which boils down to this was all about Donald Trump. There were some new nuggets and hints in there. I found it particularly interesting where the report goes into the role that lawyers played, the role of lawyers that were paid for or provided by either Trump or entities around Trump and the role they played in trying to dissuade witnesses. They don't name the witnesses, but they say it's a she. uh, Dissuade one witness in particular from coming forward with the full truth in a way that could potentially damage Donald Trump. That's something that you actually do see quite commonly in the real world. In my criminal cases, you would see more powerful people or wealthy people paying for lawyers for people to make sure those people didn't flip or didn't provide harmful information. So that was new. I found that interesting. Also, the committee alludes to potential obstruction of justice, and I want to see a bit more about what they have on that. Isn't citing an insurrection the toughest of the charges to prove? Insurrection, of course, is the most difficult to prove. The others are obstruction of Congress or conspiracy to obstruct Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Those focus on the pressure campaign on Mike Pence. Those focus on the effort to have fake electors installed. The insurrection charge, though, is much more dramatic, and you'd have to prove an intent to essentially overthrow the government. That's going to be much more difficult. DOJ has charged over 900 people connected to January 6th. They've not charged a single person with insurrection. They have charged a few with seditious conspiracy, which is similar, but not identical. So I think the committee threw in insurrection mostly as a symbolic measure. I don't think there's any realistic chance that DOJ charges Donald Trump with insurrection, but I think the committee was trying to make a larger point there. Trump is known for not putting things in writing, not emails, not texts. And also, I understand there's no evidence that he had contact with the insurrectionists. So is it going to be hard to prove intent? 
Absolutely. That is going to be the crux of any case against Donald Trump. It's often the crux of any criminal case is intent. People sometimes think about the who done it, who robbed the bank or who committed the murder. But most cases turn on intent. What was the person's state of mind? And can you show that specific criminal intent that you need in a case like this? And you're right. Trump is particularly elusive because he does not text. He does not email. So there's not going to be some smoking gun document that he created. There's not been a person really close to him on the inner circle who has flipped and cooperated in a way that prosecutors have wanted to fully credit and trust and go with. There's no known wiretap or audio tape of him. So it's very difficult to ascertain his intent. Now, the committee was making the argument that, well, if you look at all of his conduct and his public statements, you can see his intent. But that's difficult. That's never an easy road for prosecutors. And I think that's going to be the biggest obstacle to charging. I assume, but are prosecutors going to try to flip a witness? It seems like Mark Meadows might be at the top of their list. And there's been some suggestion that he might be cooperating already because DOJ didn't bring contempt of Congress charges against him despite a referral. So there's flipping a witness and then there's flipping a witness. There's one version of that where you get someone who may be on the borderline or you don't know if the person committed a crime or may have witnessed some things to come in and tell you the truth. Then there's the sort of John Dean style where somebody who was involved in the criminality, and John is a friend of mine now and I have all respect for him, but he admitted at the time that he was involved in Nixon's criminality, who comes forward and says, I was on the inside Here's what happened. I committed a crime. He committed a crime with me. That is much more difficult. You have to have leverage over a person. Absolutely, prosecutors are trying to do both of those things. That's what prosecutors spend most of our time doing. I don't buy these theories that Mark Meadows is secretly cooperating in a meaningful way with DOJ. There's no specific evidence on that. He was temporarily cooperating with the committee many months ago, but he stopped and the committee tried to get him prosecuted for contempt. So I think that's a theory that's out there that I don't see any support for and I I don't buy into. So the committee said it had sufficient evidence to make its criminal referral, but the Justice Department's standard to indict is way, way, way higher. Explain that. So DOJ's standard to indict, according to prosecutorial practice, is by the textbook, you can get an indictment based on probable cause, which means more likely than not, but no responsible prosecutor charges only based on probable cause. The guidance within DOJ is you need to be confident that you can prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt before you charge it. That doesn't mean you only charge 100% assured winners. There's no such thing as that. But you need to be satisfied that you have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That is the highest standard in our legal system. Congress's standard for making a referral frankly, is whatever Congress feels like. There's no legal standard that says Congress must be X percent sure or must meet this legal standard. It's just whatever they think. And I don't think any of them have been able to articulate what standard they're using. I think they've said persuasively that we believe this is a compelling body of evidence, but they are not playing by, nor should they be playing by the same rules that prosecutors are. That These are two different things. Whatever Congress concludes or, or refers is, is not the same test that prosecutors are going to apply. Even though Attorney General Merrick Garland has said over and over that no one is above the law and they'll go wherever the evidence takes them, but in deciding whether to indict a former president, Are they going to consider that would be a first in our nation's history, that Trump is going to be running against the current president in 2024 and a significant part of the country still believes in him and that the election was stolen? Is that all going to be part of the decision? So 
by the book, literally the book, the Justice Manual, the Guide to All Federal Prosecutors, it's not supposed to be part of the calculation. There's a section in the Justice Manual that says essentially prosecutors are not to take into consideration a person's fame or notoriety or popularity or unpopularity. But prosecutors are not robots. We live in the real world. And of course, Merrick Garland is going to think about the broader implications of this. And of course, it will be difficult, extraordinarily difficult, in my view, to get a jury unanimously, all 12 to zero, to come back and find not only a former president, but as you say, June, somebody who by the time this case ever gets to trial, if ever, it will be in the heat of a 2024 election, might even be the front runner, might even be the nominee. That is very, very difficult. And I think DOJ can be faulted for taking this long if they are going to indict. I don't think this needed to take two years. I don't think they needed to spend a year and a half focusing exclusively on the lowest level people to the exclusion of higher level people. But I think you have to consider all of those things if you're Merrick Garland. We don't know how he's going to balance them or where he's going to come out. He's certainly been cautious so far. And I think it's one of the reasons he appointed special counsel Jack Smith. So he'll sort of have another voice in there. But ultimately, the decision will be Merrick Garland. Representative Jamie Raskin said that an insurrection conviction would prohibit prohibit Trump from serving again in any public office. Now, that's been talked about a lot, and there are lots of steps before that, including a conviction, but isn't that an uphill battle? I mean, even if you get the conviction, that's an unclear legal path, isn't it? Yes. So first of all, even if you take that law on its face that says you're disqualified if you're convicted of this, not only do we have to get from indictment to trial to conviction, but that conviction also has to be reviewed by the Court of Appeals and potentially by the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, we are talking, gosh, even if they indicted tomorrow, that whole process that I just laid out would take two years, I I think, on the low end. So uh, it's not going to be barring Donald Trump from doing anything in the near future. And as I think you allude to, June, there, there is a question about whether that is constitutional or not, that bar, because the argument is, well, the U.S. Constitution gives us the qualifications to be president. It says on the face of the Constitution, person must be 35 years old, must be a, quote, natural born citizen and must have 14 years residency. And Congress can't just add to that, add to those qualifications by passing laws. You would have to amend the Constitution, which is much more difficult, requires a higher standard than just passing new laws. So even if a conviction were to come to pass and be upheld, there would be a substantial legal challenge to whether that disqualification provision would stand up. The committee named some possible Trump associates that the Justice Department can consider charging. Why don't you think they made criminal referrals specific for individuals like John Eastman? So this one requires a little bit of reading between the lines. They didn't quite say we hereby refer John Eastman or Jeffrey Clark, but they do name them throughout, uh, Eastman and Clark in particular, and here and there are some other folks, um, where they say we believe this person was a co-conspirator, aided and abetted, or whatever language. Um, so I think the committee, look, there's obviously, if you believe Donald Trump committed a crime in this case, as the committee clearly does, then he's not, he can't be the only one. There, ha- right, there are other people who are part of this who are in on it with him, Eastman and Clark and Rudy Giuliani being among the top tier. Um, so I think the committee was trying to uh, to refer not just Donald Trump, but not bog it down by listing two dozen or three dozen different people. And the committee does go out of its way a couple of times to say just because we don't mention someone here or don't mention someone explicitly doesn't mean that we believe they're free and clear. Finally, what do you think the chances are that Trump will eventually be indicted for something. 
let's break this into two parts. There is the Fulton County District Attorney in Georgia. I think the signs there are increasingly pointing towards an indictment. I'm not going to predict. I don't do that. But I think if you look at the pace of that investigation, the public statements that the DA down there has made, it seems as if the DA is inclined to seek an indictment. That's going to be even more difficult than what we've been discussing because there's an additional argument that you can't have an elected local political county level DA charging somebody for any conduct that touches on the presidency. There will be a question about whether this conduct touches on the presidency. So I think that one to me is trending towards indictment. DOJ is really a bit of a cipher as they should be. They've certainly taken their time and then some. I think Jack Smith appears to be a fairly aggressive prosecutor. I think it's more likely DOJ indicts Donald Trump on Mar-a-Lago than on January 6th and January 6th related activities. I think, again, the tea leaves are trending a bit towards indictment on Mar-a-Lago. Lago, but I'm certainly not going to predict that it's, you know, whatever percent likely. So sorry not to give you a number, but, you know, this isn't the NFL. I can't, I can't give you his final score prediction. Fair enough. Thanks so much, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. As for Trump's reaction to the referral, in a post, he called them fake charges made by the highly partisan unselect committee. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, February looks like a blockbuster month at the Supreme Court. You're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll hear argument first this morning in case number 21869, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith. The Supreme Court has heard 27 cases since it began its term on the first Monday in October, but it did not issue a decision in any of those cases before recessing for the year. That's the slowest start since the early 1900s. Add to that the fact that the number of cases the court actually takes up has hit historic lows in recent years. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, typically the court issues at least one opinion in late November or early December in an argued case. So what's happening? Are the justices just kicking back or are there other reasons? Well, I think it's exactly the opposite of that. So there are a couple of things that are really going on here. And I'll say the first of which is something that could explain why this is something we can expect to see in the future as well, is just that there's been a change in the membership of the court. And so importantly, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to really pride herself on getting not just the first opinion out of the term, but really turning around opinions very quickly. And, you know, people speculate that that's in part because she came onto the court at a time when they were hearing many more cases. And so there was just this pressure to turn around those opinions quickly so that there was enough time at the end of the term to 
get out all of their opinions. Now, the current court, it seems like most of the justices have been on the court when they're accepting far fewer cases. Now, we're lucky if we tend to get to 65 these days. And so there's just not that pressure sort of built into their DNA. And so I think this is something we're probably going to be seeing more of in the future. The last term was the most contentious I can remember in a long time. And this term looks like it's going to be fairly contentious as well. How does that play into getting opinions out? That's right. So that's actually the second reason why I think that this term in particular, we're seeing a slow start for the justices, is that, you know, often the first opinion in an argued case comes in one of these cases that are argued in October, maybe early November. But this year, the justices have really front loaded those contentious cases that you're referring to. So if you look at October, you know, we kicked it off with a major challenge to the EPA's abilities to regulate wetlands. It was followed by, you know, a voting case that could change the way that the Supreme Court and all federal courts look at certain claims brought under the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, even a really foundational trademark case that was heard at the end of October. And then if you moved into the beginning of November, it's hard to believe that it was that long ago, but that's when the court heard those cases over the affirmative action in higher education. So, you know, those cases just don't lend themselves to a quick turnaround. Not only are they really hard issues for the justices to sort out, but it's likely that those are going to be divided cases where you're going to have dissenting opinions that sort of go back and forth with the majority opinion before they're ready to let the public kind of see how those disagreements all sort of shook out. The shadow docket of emergency cases has become more active. Does that play into the slowdown? Well, that really could. I think you're right to think that with more emergency applications coming to the court, and particularly if those are going to be decisions that are divided and where we might see a justice writing a dissenting opinion, that that's going to take up some of the time that they might spend towards writing an opinion in an argued case. On the other end, you know, what we see them doing in Uh, in a case that's going to be argued next term, is that they're actually taking a lot of cases off of the shadow docket and sort of moving them into kind of how we more normally think about cases being decided at the Supreme Court with oral arguments and then these opinions that we're talking about. So I think the shadow docket sort of of works uh, in two different ways there. That will probably make a lot of people who criticize the shadow docket happier. As you mentioned, they hear so many fewer cases What were the numbers like in the old days, let's say when RBG was on the court? Well, there was a time, you know, in the 1980s or so when the justices were hearing, that was really sort of the high watermark when the justices were hearing about 150 cases. Now, they weren't hearing them the same way, hearing oral arguments for hours and hours on end. Some of them would be more summary opinions. And we've really seen that sort of creep down a lot. Now we're lucky if we get 65 opinions in argued cases. It doesn't seem like, you know, an opinion is a lot of work, but it takes the justices many, many months, not only to write it, but to circulate it to the other justices to incorporate their changes and suggestions and make sure that it's an opinion that will garner a majority. And so even just bringing down the numbers by a dozen cases or so really makes a difference to the kind of workload that the justices have. Now, tell us what used to happen before COVID when decisions were handed down. So before decisions were issued, the justices would take the bench 
Um, even if they weren't hearing any oral arguments, they'd, you know, all get dressed up in their robe. The court martial would gavel in a session. Um, there'd be public and security and reporters in the room. And the justice in the majority would, would read a portion of their opinion or summarize their opinion. And then more infrequently, really just in very big dramatic cases, the dissent might also read part of their dissent from the bench. And all of that, of course, got scrapped from, uh, you know, during the pandemic when the justices were not even coming into the courtroom. Um, and so we see now the courts made an announcement that it's going to return to its pre-pandemic ways and once again take the bench for these uh, opinion announcements. So COVID did bring one good thing to Supreme Court watchers, and that's that the audio was heard live, the audio of the oral arguments. Usually you had to wait till the end of the week, I think it was, to hear the audio. So they're keeping that up. Are they going to release audio of the decisions? So they are not. And that's sort of in keeping with its practice pre-pandemic as well. You know, you're right that the transcripts and the audio of the oral arguments would be released fairly shortly after the um, actual argument itself happened. But in the case of these opinion announcements, none of them were released until the following October. Um, So if you had a case, an opinion that was decided in November of 2022, that audio would not be available to you until October 2023. And they're going to go ahead and keep that rule. They're not going to be live streaming these. And I think that was a pretty big disappointment to a lot of people who want to see more transparency at the court. Yeah, because to get the audio of the justices reading the decisions, where do you have to go to get that audio? It's Is it on the website? It's not on the website. It's available through, you know, a government um, agency. But a lot of other private entities make it available more easily. And so here I'm thinking um, there's a group out of the University of Chicago, uh, Oh, yeah, that makes these pretty widely available when they're made available to the public. Uh, but it is it does take a lot of searching around to get a hold of these. And, you know, that's on top of the fact that it's also really difficult to, you know, even know when the justices are deciding opinions. You know, that it's not like they have a regular interval for when they decide opinions. And we never know ahead, beforehand what those opinions are going to be. So already a process that has very little transparency to it. Kimberly, there are some really contentious cases coming up next year. One is a challenge to President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, and the court has expanded that. This was the case I was mentioning earlier that was taken off of the shadow docket um, and brought onto the court's more normal docket. It is being expedited, though, at the request of the United States, and it involves Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program. You know, listeners may remember that the court had rejected a couple of emergency applications that had come up to the court um, and done so in a pretty quick fashion. But those were all a situation where the lower courts had not disturbed the program. And once the lower court did finally put the program on hold, saying that the Biden administration had gone too far, then the Supreme Court agreed to take it up. And recently we heard that they added a second case to that. And both of those will be heard in February. The court has kept the plan on hold. Are people reading anything into that? 
Well, you know, I don't know if it's the fact that they kept it on hold necessarily that has people sort of reading the tea leaves, but what the Supreme Court has said in the past about these really big governmental programs that sort of find their way into law through these more ambiguous congressional statutes. And I think the sort of conventional thinking is that this is a court that's going to be very skeptical of what the Biden administration has done here because it was done under a law that was passed so long ago that was sort of meant to address a very general situation. Um, And I think that's where you see people thinking that this program is really in trouble once the justices get their hands on it. Another case that promises to be controversial, the court's going to hear a case challenging the legal shield for social media platforms. The controversial Section 230, that will put it right in the middle of political debates. That's right. And, you know, this is a case um, that involves Google and Twitter. So it's, uh, you know, definitely the Supreme Court is not shying away from the controversial issues of the day. You know, here they're really, uh, again, looking at whether or not the shield that Congress has given to the Internet service providers and other major tech companies Uh, really makes sense in light of, you know, today's realities. And what they're looking at is algorithms by these tech companies that sort of push content um, or, you know, promotes content and whether or not they should bear any responsibility for things that happen after those. And in each of these cases, um, we have, you know, a family whose loved one was killed in an ISIS terror attack. And they're suing the tech companies saying that, you know, they bear some responsibility for really promoting that content, uh, whereas, you know, the course below said that that kind of thing is protected by federal law. So, again, another issue where the justices are just jumping right into the fray of sort of the most um, top of mind issues of the day. There are a couple of trademark cases, and my favorite is the one that involves Jack Daniels, and a squeaky dog toy. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, this is another, I, I mentioned that they had sort of a uh, foundational copyright case. This is another um, potentially foundational um, intellectual property case dealing with trademarks. It involves uh, a company who makes bad spaniel toys uh, to look very much like the um, iconic Jack Daniels uh, bottle. And the question here is really a battle between trademark law and free speech. You know, Jack Daniels says that, you know, the black, the bad spaniel violates its trademarks, uh, but the bad spaniel makers are saying, you know, this is a humorous parody and that kind of speech is protected uh, by the First Amendment. So really a battle of sort of uh, two uh, values that we have in this country of protecting trademarks and protecting speech. Is there anything you're watching for on the shadow docket? There are a few more cases that are coming up that we're keeping an eye on here. You know, there are some other cases involving social media that we're we're also looking. But, you know, it's mind-boggling to me the issues that the justices already have on their plate to decide. I wonder if there's an appetite to add much more. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.